spoken word. A taste of Melbourne's diverse poetry scene. Poets using their voices to entertain, to move, to take you on a journey. Connecting you to grassroots poetry and performance. Good morning and welcome to Spoken Word on 3CR. My name is Tina Janukas. I acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land from which 3CR broadcasts, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and pay my respects to Elders past, present and future. Today's Spoken Word honours the poetry of Ron Pretty. Ron is known throughout Australia for his poetry and his teaching and for giving many poets their start in poetry through Five Islands Press. Ron has just published his new and selected collection, 101 Poems, through Pitt Street Poetry. To honour Ron's life and work in poetry, his friends and fellow poets, Kevin Brophy and Alex Scovran will speak of the poet that is Ron Pretty and read some of their favourite works from 101 Poems. Though Ron is not appearing on the show itself, he has provided spoken word with his thoughts about his life and poetry, which will be read by his friend Peter Frankus, who also launched 101 Poems earlier this year. If you are listening to the on-air show, you will hear a small selection of Ron Pretty's poems, but if you want to hear more poetry from Ron, you can download the extended podcast of today's show, where Kevin Brophy and Alex Scovran provide listeners with extra readings of Ron's poetry. And if you are already listening to the podcast, enjoy the extra readings. The on-air version of today's show will also be available to download. Let's begin with Ron's reflections on his lifelong devotion to poetry, read by his friend Peter Frankis. First, let me say how grateful I am to Tina and to Spoken Word at 3CR for giving me this opportunity to share some of my work with you and to talk about my life and poetry over a period of more than 50 years. I don't feel you can be involved with anything over such a long period unless you're deeply committed to it. As a youth, I was a bit of a drifter. I discovered fairly early on that I enjoyed putting words on paper, but for many years I wrote only in rare moments of inspiration. When I enrolled as a student at Sydney Uni, I was introduced to the poetry of W.B. Yeats, and his poems made a huge impression on me. His poem, Sailing to Byzantium, remains one of my favourites. That uni course and the poetry it exposed me to made a deep impression on me and I began to take writing much more seriously. A few years later on, I spent a year in Greece in a town called Ceres where no one spoke English. I had been a teacher for seven years and suddenly now I had much more time to myself. I spent most of it burrowing deeper and deeper into poetry, reading as well as writing. After that, Writing became something I did every day. I was discovering poets whose work fascinated me and showed me how much I still had to learn. Yeats, Dunn, Sepphoris, Bishop, too many to name here. After I returned to Australia, I began sending poems out and began to get acceptances. I got a lot of satisfaction from that, of course, but I realised it was the act of writing itself that gave me most pleasure. My process began with waiting, emptying my mind to see what came. I sat in the evenings with fountain pen and paper, watching words I hadn't expected rolling out. 
palms flowed. Of course, when I looked critically at them next morning, many were nonsense, and even those that had potential needed several drafts before they became viable. But the whole process of writing and drafting was deeply pleasurable and has kept me writing over many years. Not long after I returned from Greece, I joined the staff of what became the University of Wollongong. While there, I joined the School of Creative Arts and we began to take in writing students. I found the process of encouraging them, offering suggestions and critiquing their work was very satisfying. Sharing the work of other writers and exploring their techniques helped my writing as much as the students. Opportunities for publishing were very limited. Not a lot has changed since then. Our first response was to establish the magazine SCARP. We established the South Coast Writers' Centre and then eight of us banded together to form Five Islands Press. Part of Five Islands Press remit was to establish the new writers' program. Before it ended, 72 first books had been published in that program. They were a subset of the 230 books by Australian poets produced while I was publisher at Five Islands. And each Christmas, we also ran the Wollongong workshops to encourage and mentor aspiring poets. A group of 50 or 60 poets and about eight mentors worked together for 10 days writing, discussing, mentoring. It was a process that enriched me and the other mentors as much as it did the participants. The act of writing a poem has been a continuing source of pleasure and satisfaction to me over many years. I've published seven full collections and six chapbooks. So when John Knight of Pitt Street Poetry offered me the opportunity of publishing 101 poems, I was, and still am, very grateful. I welcome the chance to choose what I feel are the best poems from my previous collections, plus a dozen new poems. Given my age and indifferent health, I am not writing very much these days, so this book is very likely to be the last one I publish. Choosing the poems to include has given me the chance to reconsider the themes and ideas that have inspired my writing over the years. You're listening to Spoken Word on 3CR. I'm Tina Janukas. We've just been listening to Ron Pritty's reflections on his journey in poetry, read by his friend Peter Frankis. In the studio... His friends and fellow poets, Kevin Brophy and Alex Govern, will talk to us about Ron and his poetry and read some of his poems from his latest collection, 101 Poems. If I may begin with you, Kevin, you've chosen some poems today from across his body of work from 101 Poems. What has drawn you to those particular poems? What's drawn me to the poems I've chosen are the ways in which they characterise his voice. He has a strong and distinctive voice and he has his way of making poetry. And I think the poems I've selected go some way to highlighting and showcasing that. When did you first meet Ron? Ah, well, Ron published uh, my first book of poetry back in 1992. So I first met him as, as someone who blindly, naively presented a manuscript and miraculously this man named Ron Pretty accepted it. 
So Ron has uh, played a, a role in your life that he has played in the life of many poets. Yes, Ron, as we all know, was a publisher of many, many new young emerging poets. And not just the publisher, he mentored. And uh, through his new writing program, he took on every year for many years half a dozen new writers with their chapbooks published by Ron on tours across the country to present their work. So he was not only a publisher, but he took us out into the world and took our poetry out into the world and advocated for poetry. And you also taught later on with Ron at uh, Melbourne University, didn't you? Uh, Yes, and in the lead up to that, there were 10 years of summer workshops at Wollongong University. And then after that, I was present at Melbourne University when Ron was teaching there and again, mentoring students in the beautiful and lovely way that he is capable of. So I imagine the poems you've chosen today are meaningful to you as well. Yes, yes. I uh, relate to and resonate with the voice that he can bring into his poetry. Would you like to read one of your first selections? I'd like to read a poem called Wombat, which comes from A Habit of Balance, published in 1988. A couple of the reasons I've chosen this is that it begins in the sensual world. The sensual, physical world is very much a part of what his poetry is about. It also makes observations of nature, but a nature that is somewhere between being wild and being tamed, and never being quite wild and never being quite tamed. And the other reason I've chosen the poem is that it tells a story, and Ron's poems very often are committed to telling a story. So, Wombat. Shivering with the need and fear of love is apt to make the boy forgetful. So when we return from the grass beyond the road in the Royal National or Pasho Park, as the school kids called it, grass seeds on the blanket, shoes in hand, I wasn't surprised to see the doors left open. What did surprise were the trusting yellow eyes staring out of darkness in the back seat. Cats are dumped miles from home as alternative to drowning. Tamed wombats, after they dig up the potato patch and novelty has given way to smell, are taken back to the scrub they came from. This one had kept its faith in humans as the easier way to food. Made generous by natural pleasures beneath the trees, I shut the door and took him home. There was some difficulty in explaining how I'd come by such an unsuburban acquisition and my parents, the joys of youth long lost, soon tired of uprooted glads and holes beneath the steps, apparently angry but secretly relieved once the girl had moved on to indoor pleasures with someone else. I took the great brown smelly lump to the local backyard zoo, old Martin, gave five dollars for my troubles, which I spent as consolation, playing the bandits at the local club. Every now and then I go to see the wombat, comfortably housed in his neat wire cage. I even saw the girl there once, but she only rubbed against her mate and smiled. It has that uh, wonderful sensibility I've always identified in uh, Ron's work. What is the next poem you've chosen? The next poem I've chosen is a poem called Afterwards. 
This comes from his Of the Stone collection, 2010. And in some ways it's a, a much more simple poem. It's like the first poem, playful with its ideas. So, afterwards, it is finished. The body taken down, the crowd dispersed, soldiers return to barracks. Around the hill, a cold wind blows, the smell of sand and sweat and blood. By nightfall, all is quiet. For the guardians, one question remains. They've put the body in a cave, a rounded stone at its mouth. What men have put in place, then men can surely roll aside. If the body stays, the cave becomes a shrine, we know, the centre of a cult. The crowd that came to see him hang will surely come to worship at the cave's mouth. Candles are lit and incense sprinkled there already. What men have put in place, men can roll aside. With the body gone, the empty tomb, the cult will fade away. Disciples scatter, and what threatened an upheaval becomes a minor incident of empire. Tonight, we move the corpse, place it safely in the earth, and so lay to rest the whole distracting business. That was a wonderful reading of that poem. Another poem for us? A third poem that I wish to read is titled Translation, and it comes from his collection The Left Hand Mirror, published in 2017. I think that by this, we might say later, phase of his writing, he has become more reflective and perhaps more emotional in a, um, a kind of um, intense way. He's attacking more complex questions. Perhaps I should contextualise the poem a little. Ron and his wife have adopted two daughters from Sri Lanka. And this is about the meeting of one of his adopted daughters with her birth mother. Translation. She could not speak to her mother when they met. She had just turned 21, but had never seen this small dark woman until then, except in photos. Harris sat beside her, his smile inviting them to break the silence. He would translate, he said, if only they had something to say. Mother and daughter looked at one another, tears on their cheeks. Tell her, she said to Harris, tell her, I did not know where she'd gone, which country she went to. I used to watch the planes fly over, she said, and wonder where they were going, and if she was on them. Alana, for that was the daughter's name, reached out to her without a word. She took her hand. Visanthi, the mother said, that was your name. And still it is, the daughter cried. Tell her, she said through her tears, tell her that's what it is. Star sapphires falling as tears, and a second mother, in her pale silence, watching Alana Visanthi, there in that room. Sri Lankan sun streaming in where mother and daughter are holding hands, having no language except its loss. 
3CR Community Radio, 855am. You're listening to Spoken Word on 3CR. I'm Tina Janukas and I'm talking with poets Kevin Brophy and Alex Coverin about the work of Ron Pritchie. Today they are reading poems from Ron Pritchie's 101 poems published by Pitt Street Poetry. Alex, you've also known Ron for a very long time, like Kevin Brophy has. Well, unlike uh, Kevin, I didn't have the privilege of uh, teaching with Ron. We met around about 30 years ago in the early 90s and a friendship developed slowly. And later on in 99 and 2003, Ron published with Five Islands two of my collections, my third and fourth book. This actually enhanced our acquaintanceship and we got to know each other a lot better And um, because we worked together on those books and it was a period of, of a friendship that continued to develop and blossom. I also launched a few books for Five Islands by friends and that added another dimension. So slowly over the years, although we didn't actually have an ongoing association and a continuing one, we did maintain contact constantly through that period. Sometimes if Ron happened to be in Sydney and I happened to be in Sydney, then we would meet up. There was a period when Ron lived in Melbourne and then we were able to uh, indulge our friendship even more. And so that's how it was. And over the years, we, um, we followed and appreciated each other's work. You two have chosen favourite poems from Ron's 101 poems. What has drawn you to those poems? I think the outstanding reason for my having chosen the ones I did is the voice that always comes across with such clarity. Ron's poetry is an open-hearted poetry. I think there's a great clarity, an honesty, um, even an intimacy sometimes. There are many personal poems. The poems that I've chosen actually reflect perhaps not as much Ron's personal story, but his meditations and his explorations, especially of history, perhaps myth, uh, by extension philosophical issues, issues, existential issues, in fact. This cluster of poems that I've selected kind of worked together for me as a a snapshot or a summation of some of the best that we uh, find and some of the most varied and interesting of Ron's work. I'd love to hear your first selection. I'm going to start with a poem called Of the Stone. It's a title poem, in fact, from the collection Of the Stone, Ron's fourth collection. What attracts me to this poem is the rhetorical unfolding of the language, the incantatory quality of the poem. It's a poem about many things. It covers the whole gamut of experiences, life and love and loss, passage, and ultimately its mystery. It's actually sort of a night music with its rhythms and shadows. One interesting point, Ron's often has been experimenting over the years with different ways of structuring poems, and this one has an unusual formal approach. It's a poem of 51 lines, uh, 21 of which all begin with the words of the, and the other 30 lines are all indented quite generously. Of the stone. Of the wash of moon across the grass and the deeper shadows of the trees. Of the bark peeling away in grey sheets from the gums. Of the night never silent, the dust and the steelworks smoke. 
of the table vibrating under your arm as the aeroplane takes off or the train grinds past or the solid earth crumbles to a fault. Of the thin sheets of moonlight gliding up the beach, whispering to those who stand there staring beyond the ships at anchor to the dark rim of the earth. Of the grit that the wind carries and the winter sleet. Of the fractured air before a thunderstorm, the atavistic view to the bruised hills, the trees shivering like vibraphones, and the wires allowed to the clouds. Of the 747 skidding and sidling between the cumulonimbus towers, the passengers bubbling in fear, the crew trying not to show it. Of the mountains hugely disappearing into fog, rounded cultures thinned to silhouettes, history reduced to lines of battle. Of the moment of recognition that feels like loneliness and the sharp fins of pain. Of the ache of remembrance, of reaching, unable to grasp the form that waits there now, or doesn't, or not for you. Of the love that has no root soil. Of the loss that gives it strength. Of the heart that aches for nothing but itself. The flow constricted into pain, the pulse arrhythmic, the gasp of love or recognition shaken down to fear. Of the night that pulses on the pen, shivering the Rorschach blots for caterpillar minds to read directions and a faith. Of the edging outwards to an image lined with dreams, cross-hatched with need, the warmth of arms and thighs, the afterglow of sex, the thin wail of passion. Of the gross anthology of death, the gush of fire, or blood or air, the falling cry, the cold connivance, the mindless panting. Of the unfulfilled transfiguring from breath to silence, from love to stone, from softly falling rain to acid, the smoke, not of election, but of ash. Of the night, of the parting, the need and the fear, the etched and printed books of loss. Of the love that fails all understanding. Of the stone that blocks the empty tomb. That's quite a remarkable poem. Yes, it's a dark poem in a way. And it seems to have been begun in flight obviously from an aeroplane. It moves from there and hovers all over experience and all over time and memory and passage. What is your next poem? My next poem is from What the Afternoon Knows, 2013, and it is Theseus at 80. Now, this is a dramatic monologue spoken by Theseus, the Athenian hero, who reflects on life and love and especially on the failure of his memory, his fading memory, and in particular his fading memory of Ariadne. Ariadne was a princess, the daughter of Pasiphae and King Minos of Crete. She was uh, a young girl who fell in love with this handsome Athenian hero. Theseus had actually come not for her, but to slay the Minotaur. And it was with her help, that famous ball of thread, that he was able to enter the labyrinth where the Minotaur, which was a beast, half man, half bull, 
uh, resided, kill the beast and come out again, find his way safely. Having betrayed her father, Ariadne didn't see the point of hanging around, and Theseus spirited her off to Naxos, an island in the Aegean. And there the stories diverge. According to some versions of the legend, he left her there to die, or she committed suicide. The more common legend is that she was found by the god Dionysus, and they married. So after that long preamble, here is Theseus at 80. I am in the third level of irritation, in the library of forgetting. I am reading the old scrolls in my head to find the names I can't recall. But that's not it. There's something there is, I fear, that means to speak to me, that makes my flesh crawl in the stacks and statutes of the past. These files must open out to me, for what they hold betrays me in the dark unleavened corners of my time. There, that tissue, feathery, almost transparent, a name I don't remember, an image of a face or body that only stirs a sense of loss. In Knossos I, I must have known her once, or, or Athens, but nothing stirs above the loins. I search for names and look again for leads hidden in the labyrinth of years. My hands are covered in dust. I sneeze as tears trickle down my cheeks. And once the ferryman transported me to Naxos, that green island, where nightingales won't let you go to sleep. There was a girl. I'm in the third age of irritation. This file and accusation I do not wish to answer. A fiction I never will recall. Her face. The nightingale. I sailed away. Black sails. I don't remember. The third circle. Darkness. There's certainly darkness in that poem as the loss of memory plays out, I must say. You have another poem for us? I do. And this one is called Peacocks. It's from the new uncollected poems section of 101 Poems. Peacocks is in two solid stanzas, 25 lines of free verse, relatively free verse. It straddles a number of different concerns. Peacocks, of course, Beethoven, the vagaries of affection. It's a first-person reminiscence, which the poet effectively turns in several directions at once. So, peacocks. When the rain came that afternoon, I put on the emperor. At first I thought it was the peacock strutting on the roof, scrabbling around, but no, the downpour was flooding the damp ground. I had seen them earlier, the peacocks, head to head, cock to hen in what appeared to be avian affection. Washed away, I shouldn't doubt, in the downpour that followed, Lovers caught in the rain often find passion drying with the return of the sun. I doubt I'll see those birds so affectionate again. Perhaps it was the rain souring my mood, or perhaps just the slow movement of the concerto feathering my melancholy. Ludwig had no plumage. He found in his notes a deeper brilliance than any peacock blue. But his lady students found him dull, perhaps a bit of a turkey. Each of those beautiful, talented girls declined his affection, went looking for glossier birds. 
By then he could not hear the rain, but saw the tone in their faces, fitted into the slow movement of the emperor, while winter washed the streets of Vienna. Ron's interest in music is something that has attracted me to quite a lot of his poems. He often explores the impact of music, the effect of music, and its role that it has played in his life. Street CR Community Radio, 855 AM. I'm Tina Janukas, and I'm talking today with poets Kevin Brophy and Alex Govron about the poetry of Ron Pretty. Kevin and Alex are reading extra poems for the podcast from Ron Pretty's latest collection, 101 Poems. In giving listeners these extra poems, what uh, would you like listeners to take away? Would you like to answer first, uh, Kevin? I guess the reason for doing more poems is that Ron has written a lot of poetry and uh, the small selection we've been able to do on air only skims the surface. What about you, Alex? Well, I think to um, to explore the full range of Ron's poetry, this podcast and this program should be an incentive to readers to find the books and get a sense of what a broadly based and interesting and moving poet Ron is, uh, how he covers so many bases across a wide range of concerns, some of them autobiographical and many of them quite personal, many exploring important issues that either resonate today or are ultimately rooted in the past but continue to spill their their influence and their their music actually into our perceptions of of who we are certainly as i hear the poems you've already read and as i myself read through the collection over the past few days i was struck yet again by how versatile a poet ron is so i am delighted that we're able to offer listeners more readings of his poems kevin would you like to Begin with some extra poems. I'd like to read um, Ron's poem, Reading Tranter, Without Training Wheels. And this comes from his collection, Bald Hill with Gliders, from 1991. I want to read this for a number of reasons. And one is that it demonstrates how through and through he is a poet. Every experience in his life is filtered through the fact that he is a, a poet. And further than that, as I was saying before, his poems tell stories, and this poem tells its own small story, and it tells that story in a way that makes it clear that for a poet, the most ordinary experiences, the most ordinary series of events can operate as metaphors. And exactly what they are metaphors for is up to us as the readers to nut out and feel into as we go. In addition to that, I was talking this morning with John Leonard about the fact that all or nearly all poetry does tell a story, even if the story is sometimes the story of its thought process. And this poem is very much the story of a thought process. That is uh, John Leonard, the editor. That's right, John Leonard, the 
anthology editor for Oxford and Punter and Watman. So, reading Tranter without training wheels. I'm under the influence, not of Berlin, or anything as earthy as Cooper's, but Tranter and his cocktails. Dry. More gin than vermouth. Their fumes have shouldered back the clouds. The morning sun shines groggily, and my daughter opts to do without her training wheels. She's got a lot to learn of balance and the glitterati. The hip, cool sophisticates, the whole world's Americas, and America's your oyster. Only a naïf would expect compassion. The blade is cool and sharp. Everything's corrupt. Low-down sex in a motel shack, smack and spasms, cops in dark glasses on the take, pounding on the door. For an hour or so we pedal over grass and toes and concrete, always at a glittering tangent to the road, with wheels so wobbly you'd think the mob had cornered that market too. As the sun gets vertical, perspiration drips from me as never from a cool tranter poem. Again the sixties pass me by, the times I thought I had, the birds, the booze, the scorching up the strip, was all uncool, suburban. At half past twelve I push her onto the grass and let her go. She veers towards the gutter, trying nervelessly to stay upright, together. Wonderful poem. Yeah. I, uh, I communicated with Ron about the selection of poems I was intending to read, and Ron made a brief comment on each of them. He said about this poem that his daughter Saroja was learning to ride her two-wheeler at the same time as he was reading Tranter's collection under Berlin. And you can imagine him with his book in his hand, standing there instructing his daughter, and then dropping the book to go and rescue her as she veers towards that gutter. What's your next choice? My next choice is a poem called Kalanchua. I had no idea what this word meant, so of course I had to go back and find it. And it's in his 1996 collection, Halfway to Eden. Kalanchua in the tropics means a fever suffered by sailors who believe that the sea is a green field. And its origins are in the Latin word calere, to be warm or to be heated or to be becoming hot. When I told Ron I was going to um, read this poem, he said, ah, yes, I don't know where that poem came from, but one of its origins was in the fact that he didn't know what that word meant when he came across it. And once he discovered its meaning, he wanted to write the poem that came from that meaning. And again, we have nature mixed with violence, love and sensuality. We have the drama of delusion and a kind of anti-romantic sublime entering the poem. Kalanchua, someone there is who stands at the rail, hour after hour, the white wake surging away from him, the slow rise and fall of the swell, the gull cries as they circle and swoop on the wake, hour after hour at the rail, the sun huge in the horizon mists, the breeze playing with hair, easing his fever. Once as he waits there, the green fields in the grassy swells, he puts a hand to his damp cheek as if remembering her hand 
as a hook to the future. And once he turns to the empty deck, the crew at their stations, or lazing below with photos. By moonrise the swell has flattened, the shiver of the ship, its glide through peaceful seas, the long path of the moon on water, his silhouette black at the rail in the moonlight. Though to himself he feels as incandescent as the green glow of the wake-filled phosphorescence and just as insubstantial. The fever grows toward midnight. He licks his salty lips, feeling there another mouth, the soft curve of past and future. The moon sinks to the rim, its path defined as the road that passes his door. Day long the traffic, the horses, the cabriolets, the footsteps. He stands at the door, looking out, waiting, remembering her soft lips, the fingers on his cheek, the hint of invitation. And then he sees her on the high road, a hand raised in greeting. He steps across the lintel with barely a splash. The moon goes down. Another beautiful poem, I think, by Ron. We have a real sense of the way his poems can be very uh, reflective of the thinking process of the experience itself. And his attraction to the drama, the drama of, I suppose, in that poem, a whole implied novel. Indeed. Another poem. This one, Montaigne. I'm partly drawn to this poem because I too love Montaigne's essays. Not that I agree with everything he writes and says and thinks, but I love the way he makes the essay work with almost any topic you can imagine. When I mentioned to Ron that I was going to read this poem, Ron said, we were in a motel. Um, not me and Ron. It was Ron and Jane. We were in a motel in Newcastle when uh, they saw this event. Just as with the Tranter poem, he had recently read Montaigne's comment and um, both Montaigne's comment and the event melded for him in this poem. And Jan, of course, is Ron's wife. Yes. Montaigne. The evening sun is weak now. The bathers from the hotel pool have wrapped their towels around their waists and gone indoors. But the hum of vehicles coming and going is undiminished. I'm sitting on a balcony that overlooks the bay, trying to ignore the voices and the cold wind off the water. Thinking of chance, thinking of children. I'm reading Montaigne as he writes... The purpose of your life is to construct the meaning of your death. I'm still brooding on that when a child runs screaming across the hotel car park. About four she is, or five. Her curling blonde hair floats behind her as she runs. Her small thongs flap across the asphalt. She has no other clothes on. The slanting sun throws her shadow long and thin. She's screaming words I can't decipher. So many years her senior, it seems I recognise her existential terror or perhaps that of her father thumping heavily behind, calling her name. She doesn't pause her onward rush, not even when an SUV is shocked to a halt a foot or two away. 
Her father yelps. The driver gets out pale and shaking. But still she flees her unconstructed death. While her father and the driver lean against the open door, rehearsing theirs. Would you like to read another poem? I would like to read a poem called Envoy, which is uh, one of those words I had to look up in the Oxford Dictionary and discovered that it's a final message in a literary sense, a final message from a writer to his readers and perhaps to himself as well. And this was published in his um, 2013 collection, uh, What the Afternoon Knows, and it has an epigraph. And the epigraph goes... The afternoon knows what the morning never expected, which is a Swedish proverb. It felt like drifting. As a child, I went to hospital, came out, went back again. Things happened, mostly painful. I endured them, drifting, in the good days down the long road of my youth. I idled the miles to school, got on with it as something to be endured like all the rest. Sometimes I did well, sometimes badly. That was what life was, endurance. Mostly of pain and of what each day might bring. No one expected much of me. I was a drifter, a dreamer, idling in the bush after school, collecting cicadas, flowery baker, green grocer, yellow Monday, black prince. I lived among the gums, the creek I followed down to Como, between hospital visits, steward house, school. In those mornings, did I ever think of the afternoon? Asked what I wanted for my adulthood, I imagined myself, a sickly city boy, as a farmer or perhaps a sailor, knowing so little of either. And so I drifted through school and into teaching for want of ambition or any particular talent. Those who can't, etc. Drift and endurance. Coping with what was dealt, I drifted into the country, back to the city, and out again, this time north to Casino. There for a year I found myself in love with several women, as well as, at last, with teaching. But after a year I left to drift to England, teaching on supply, and then, by drift, by chance, to Greece. Something stirred. By chance, I found myself where no one spoke English. I had no Greek, no books, no link to the world beyond the junta. Slowly, for want of something better, I drifted into writing. Even as I wrote, I had no inkling of the afternoon. But I wrote all year, until writing was a drug I became dependent upon. So late... That morning shaped my afternoon. I'd never thought what the day might bring. It was enough to endure. Now that the sun is inching toward the distant hills, I see that drifting youth and know it was the best of times. An unexamined living with cicadas a long time underground. That's a a wonderful poem of memory and uh, sentiment. Yeah, yeah and mystery of how we end up where we end up in life. That's very true. And one more poem. I'd like to read from Ron's recent Uncollected Poems, a small 
one called Saving the World Feather by Feather. And you could read this easily as a wry and even dismissive poem, uh, a little joke. But I think that if the little four boys in this poem are, are anything, they are budding poets. And Ron, at this end of his writing life, is reflecting uh, partly upon both the beauty and the foolishness of what it means to try to save the world when one is a poet. So saving the world feather by feather. I open the door to four helmets gleaming up at me. What are you this time, boys? Ninjas? Pirates? Collective shaking of heads. Alex? Poor patrol. Come in. I'll get you some milk and biscuits. They take their helmets off and become four small boys, white and brown, with grey plastic swords and guns. After the snack, they get up to leave, thanking me nicely, the milk like a moustache on their upper lips. The helmets fit them like loose shoes. Their masks restored, they resume their quest to save the world from the bad guys, waving their weapons as they leave, shouting their warrior cries. Though muffled by the safety of their closed-down visors, their tribal chants are loud enough, high-pitched enough, to frighten the sparrows and the cat stalking the birdbath. It's a powerful little poem, actually. <laughs> Both powerful and amusing and uh, double in its meanings. That's often the case of Ron's poetry, isn't it? That there's various moods running through a poem. He's both a very natural and a very self-aware poet. And part of the pleasure of reading him is watching him manoeuvre between that, that naturalness he manages and the self-awareness that's acutely there. I'd love to hear some more poems that uh, Alex has selected Alex, what has uh, made you choose these other extra poems by Ron? It's another mixture. The first one I'll read is a very autobiographical poem, and after that there'll be more of what you could call poems with a more public face. One of them very much to do with 20th century history, another to do with an impending crisis that we're all facing, but done in a very delicate and oblique manner. And the one I'll start with, in fact, is that autobiographical one. It's called Suburban Obard. It comes from Ron's first collection, The Habit of Balance, from 1988. It is a poem with a compelling rhythm, almost like a nursery song. It evokes the flow of time and routine, a kind of a domestic plenitude, even joy. It's a formal poem. It's got uh, three quatrains rhyming, rhyming A-A-B-B. So here is Suburban Obard. Late in the night and early in the morning, a new daughter stirring and the old world turning. Termites in the timber and fruit fly in the peaches, but the couple in the kitchen are the hungriest of creatures. Sun on the curtains, cicadas in the trees, our love flows strongly, although creaking at the knees. Slippers in the bathroom and rust-stained bowls and paddling down the hallway as the baby squalls. Late in the night and early in the morning, 
freight trains rumbling and semi-trailers roaring. Breakfast is laughter and cold scraped toast. Threesome in the kitchen, in a cliché embraced. That's been one of my favourite Ron Pretty poems for a very long time. Well, I'm assuming it's, it's fully autobiographical. It certainly has that stamp on it, hasn't it? Yes, it does. Well, the next poem is Midnight's Children. This is a poem that's dedicated to Salman Rushdie. It comes from Bald Hill with Gliders, 1991. Its subject is Vladimir Mayakovsky. He was the leading poet of the Russian Revolution and of the early Soviet period. Uh, he died in 1930, having been born in 1893, died in Moscow. He was a wholeheartedly pro-Bolshevik in his politics and in his poetry, which was very influential during that period. But he was unlucky in love, and he had a number of romantic frustrations, and these also influenced his poetry the last of which was in Paris in 1928, a couple of years before he died. He fell in love with a refugee called Tatiana Yakovleva, and he wanted to marry her, but she turned him down. He also had run-ins with the Russian Association of Proletarian Writers and with the Soviet regime at large. He was denied a visa to travel abroad, and in the end, out of desperation, he committed suicide in Moscow. This is the man Stalin had called the best and most talented poet of our Soviet epoch. Midnight's Children At midnight, Mayakovsky, staring east over the frozen steps of Stalin's time, searches for the last frail line of verse to lie beside the iron rails and a destination fixed on wheels. I see him the stained page, fingers on the pen, staring at the windows of the dark, reflecting back himself. On the roof, the frozen winter starts to slide. He hears the soft snow building into a weight beyond his shifting, with a cold pen spluttering ink into Rorschach blots a terrorist will read as treason. Love poems for someone in the next room, the next decade, you must have gone to bed, he writes. No need to waken you with wild alarms. I hear the whispering of snow on slate, the singing of the wind, the distant call of a train, implacably heading east across the steppes. In Vladivostok there's a boat, they tell me, outward bound, with flags and bunting, all the rags of summer. My name is on the list. The train will take me there. Yet here he sits, past midnight, the quiet sobbing in the next room, listening to the snow, shifting on the eaves, eloquent as destiny. He looks down at the page, at black marks on white paper signifying silence. He gets up and opens a drawer. The black shape there is hard as a fanatic's pleasure. I like the way in this poem that Ron slides imperceptibly between Mayakovsky's voice and his own and then back into Mayakovsky again. It's a very skillful poem in that respect. It is, yes. And I would like to uh, continue, if I may, with uh, another poem. This one is quite different in its atmosphere, in its subject matter and in its time period. It's called The Maladroit Boys, comes from Halfway to Eden, the collection from 1996. It's a powerful poem. It has, a, it has a very strong rhythmic drive. 
three stanzas, short lines, uh, with selective rhymes and certain repetitions, a sort of a quite a rapid music. It's a suburban tableau, boys with cars and their fate, a skilled blend of elegy and lament for the misplaced exuberance of youth. The Maladroit Boys. Under the lip of the hill lie the Maladroit Boys, grey of the shrikes, pink of galahs, roistering round in their father's new car, full in the bars, drunk in the park, facing a tree with the doors ajar, covering the beds with their blood-stained noise, under the thumb of the moon lie the headstrong boys. Under the hem of the moon lie the spirited boys, into a tree with the doors ajar, and the driver loud as galahs, his mates in the back, leaning out of his father's new car, its headlights on gardens and tree trunks and splintering toys. Under the hood of the moon lie the roistering boys. Under the pale gibbet moon lie the muddlehead boys, the girls in the back turning white. Under the eyes of the girls, moon shadow joys, and the boys driving drunk in their father's new car, their mates in the back leaning out, and the bull-roaring boys hanging on to the noise of the splintering trees, of the splintering bones, the spirit that blinds them, the lust that destroys. Under the lip of the hill lie the sallow-faced boys. I uh, have always admired that poem, actually, for its musicality. It moves beautifully, doesn't it? It has a, a sense of ballad and elegy and a, a wonderful tripping momentum, almost like those cars. It has an inevitability to it, where it will end. Do you have another poem for us? My next poem is Building an Ark from Postcards from the Centre, 2009. This is a poem that also sweeps across history, but in a different way. It sets the destruction of art against the barbaric, quote-unquote, works of man, building an ark. The destruction of artwork in Florence in the Great Flood of 1966 moved a priest to declare, as Robert Hughes tells us, il più grande vandalismo è quello di Dio. Translated, it loses none of its power, none of the priest's despair. The worst vandalism, he cries, is God's own. After Hitler, Stalin, Pol Pot, that is some claim. Biafra, September 11, the Cultural Revolution. The works of man weigh in the balance as quite a challenge to the vandal who destroyed the city of art. That act of God might be compared, perhaps, to the burning of the Library of Alexandria. And how does the final solution compare to the Christmas tsunami, Pompeii to Hiroshima, the endless earthquakes to the scorched earth march of armies which even 2,000 years ago moved Tacitus to rage. They make a desert and they call it peace. Despair lies in the contemplation of these disasters, whether made by man or God. But who shall we blame for the rising waters? And who shall build our ark? I love that final question in that poem. Kind of unmistakable. I think you have one more poem you want to read. This one is called Pigeons of the Dome from the Left Hand Mirror, 2017. It's a poem that's set in Istanbul, former Constantinople, at the Hagia Sophia. 
one thing I need to mention is that a reference to the Pirate King is alluding to the Doge of Venice, Enrico Dandolo, who led the Fourth Crusade and the sack of Constantinople in 1204. Pigeons of the Dome. From here on the balcony we see them, pigeons in Hagia Sophia. They roost high in the dome. Their view is ages old of pilgrims and tourists crowding the marble floors of this cathedral, mosque and now museum. Always they have flown here, in this still air once hallowed, now profane. They look down today on these flashlight tourists as they did on desecrating crusaders whose pirate king lies buried here, he whose holy marauding brought him down at last. And then Mohammedans, sons of the prophet, spreading the word by the sword. The pigeons have seen it all. They nest in the dome as they have from its first raising up. Their feathered kind has prospered two thousand years while kingdoms have come and gone. They glide in the still air, while far below a child looks up from between her parents and cries for the birds seemingly trapped as they drift from icon to icon in the artificial light under the arching heavens. Her father, learned, devout, but ignorant of the pigeon's history, murmurs to her, aren't we all? Who knows if the ark of heaven will hold? When the temple falls at last, these birds will surely escape the cupola, will fly free under the blue dome of the sky. Let's give the final word to Ron as his friend Peter Frankus reads Ron's thoughts on his life in poetry. My life of writing, teaching and publishing poetry has been a deeply satisfying one. My hope is that the poems have also given pleasure to my readers. I can't finish without thanking my good friends Alex, Kevin and Peter as well as Tina and Spoken Word at 3CR for making this broadcast possible. I hope you've enjoyed their readings. You have been listening to Spoken Word on 3CR. I'm Tina Janukas and I've been talking with poets Kevin Brophy and Alex Govern about the work of fellow poet Ron Pretty, who has just published his new and selected 101 Poems with Pitt Street Poetry. Ron's reflections on his life in poetry were read by Peter Frankus. Spoken Word broadcasts every Thursday at 9am or live stream 3cr.org.au. Thank you for listening.